Okay, so welcome to the Awesome Boom podcast. I'm sat here with a friend of mine, Patrick Morton. Uh, he's a Canadian ex-banker. Yeah, I hate to say it, but that's ex- the case. Ex-banker, so uh, potentially one of the one of the enemy, um, who is uh, basically give us a bit of background. On yeah, so uh, I came out of the investment banking industry for about fifteen years. I've been in the UK for about seven. And uh, over the last three years, discovered cannabis. I had no prior knowledge, but because Canada is in the process of legalizing, it's been front page news for several years now. And uh, I started to read about it and was absolutely blown away to learn about the endocannabinoid system, the nature of cannabinoids, THC, CBD, etc. That not only is it not bad for you, but it's actually a medicine. And I've been lied to my whole life by teachers, schools, even parents. Not lied to, but misinformed and misdirected. And so as I learned more and more, I realized like this is incredible. It's changing the world. It's changing communities and society. And realized I don't want to be working in the corporate world anymore, doing the rat race, um, you know, painfully trudging to work 12 hours a day. Uh, so finally quit my job about a year ago and I've been involved in the cannabis industry ever since. So uh, when you sort of mentioned that, you know, you, you feel like you've been lied to, um, you growing up in Canada was, I mean, we always think Canada being a fairly liberal, sort of relaxed sort of space when it comes to sort of cannabis. Uh, so I'm assuming that you didn't grow up being a sort of a, 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 tip, a cannabis user or anything like that was that because of you know your upbringing your schooling religion or yeah it was a combination of those three things upbringing schooling and religion um, my parents sort of warned me uh, that cannabis kills your brain cells it makes you lazy and dumb it's a gateway drug and that's the same message that I would get from school and the you know religious authorities people of authority in general I grew up in Vancouver, the home of BC Bud, and uh, you know, I throughout my teenage years, I had friends that were smoking and doing it. Smart kids, like totally functional, um, but who would, you know, have access to tons of weed. I had friends that were dealing it, dealing bricks of it. Um, uh, you know, I ended up having friends that got very deep into the drug trade and went off in the wrong direction, but. Um, Suffice to say, like I was aware of it and I was around it, but because of my fear of this thing is a dangerous drug, I never touched it. And um, yeah, it's only 25 years later that I've kind of discovered it as, among other things, an incredible alternative to alcohol. I've been poisoning myself with alcohol for 20, 20 years um, when I had this like far safer, far better alternative all, all along. I know, but it's... it's um... <clears throat> It's a tr- it's a tricky one because it's, it's pretty much the same in the UK. Although I don't I don't think our I don't think our drugs education is is as sort of uh, extreme as maybe like North America, Canada could be. Um, but certainly for certainly for us, it, it was always the same sort of rhetoric. You know, cannabis will make you stupid. Um, I never thought of cannabis being any sort of medicine. That 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 was that totally escaped me. 
and it was it was only actually when I was working in a private rehabilitation centre that um, one of the clients' uh, husbands came in. Uh, she she sadly passed away years ago, so I can talk about it. But she had Huntington's disease, which is this really, really tricky neurodegenerative disease disorder, which is incredibly cruel. It, it robs you of, of everything. You know, it robs you of your ability to talk, to be able to self-care, uh, to, to swallow, to, to eat properly. It's, it's, it's a horrendous, horrendous condition. And at the time, we were doing some drug trials um, with the Queen Elizabeth hospital in Birmingham and they'd just started trialing this drug called Nabulone. Nabulone was a synthetic THC uh, drug and they came to us and they were like look we need to sort of trial this out with people we, you know we, we think it's going to certainly help the sort of the motor skills of people with Huntington's because they one of the one of the side effects is they suffer from terrible involuntary movements and because their bodies are constantly jerky and moving the whole time, they, they burn through ten to 15,000 calories worth of food every single day. So they thought that actually THC could really sort of help calm the mind down, calm the body down like it does with, with a lot of people. And I remember taking this lady into uh, this sort of specialist department where we had, you know, like water beds and, you know, a, a multi-sensory style room, explaining to her that, I was going to give her this joint. And, you know, you could see that she was she was fairly excited about this. And bearing in mind, this this this, this person, I, I hadn't heard her, I'd never heard her speak. She couldn't talk, she couldn't verbalise. Everything oh. was through sign language because she lost the ability, uh, you know, to be able to talk. So I explained to her, I was just like, look, you know, your husband's giving me these joints. You know, I'm going to light it up, I'm going to give it to you. And that's it. We're just going to, I mean... There was no protocols, you know. We weren't allowed to do this, you know. It's not, it's, it's, it's not the done thing necessarily. But we're just like, well, you know, this poor lady's on like sixty-three different tablets a day, and they're not working for her. So I lit up this joint, gave it to her, and her hand just came out and sort of grabbed this, grabbed this joint between her two fingers and stuffed it into her mouth. And I just remember just going, <laughs> shaking away, blessed, trying to inhale in as much of this smoke as possible. And she finished this joint, which is probably only about three and a half inches long, within about four or five pulls. Wow. And it was incredible. I, I was watching her, anxious, nervous, thinking, oh, is this a good idea? I'd use cannabis, you know, in my younger years, you know, purely recreationally, you know, when you're out with friends, you know, after a couple of beers. And... Although I enjoyed it, 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 it was, I never thought of it as a medicine. It was just like, well, this is just something I'm going to take just to get high. And you saw this lady who was rigid, so she's all tight up, pulled up in a fetal position because all of her muscles all tighten up like this. And you could see a whole physiology just change. A whole physiology just changed. And she opened her eyes and she said, thank you to me. And for six seven hours she was a different person she you know she she was able to stretch out her body her hands went from being contorted tight little knots her fingers just released themselves and i remember thinking to myself at that point i was just like actually yeah damn that 
yeah. what have I just witnessed here? You know, this is this is something that I occasionally recreationally smoke with friends after a couple of beers. It gets me high. I laugh. I eat pizza. I raid the fridge. I, I, I tap the ice cream. I sleep really well. I wake up in the morning feeling fine. But I've got somebody here who's on a, on a, on a plethora of nasty medications with horrendous side effects. And this person has just been able to consume a very, very small amount of cannabis and has got seven hours of release you know, from this horrendous disease that if we're being honest, if the drugs we were giving her worked and they had the same result, we'd be like, okay, there's, there's, what's the issue? Yeah. This had such a fundamental shift. It made yeah. such a huge difference to, this, difference to this person's life. And it was from that moment on, I remember going home and just thinking to myself, I need to learn a hell of a lot more about yeah. cannabis. Yeah. And that was a defining moment in my life. Wow. I was just like, look, I'm going to look into this and start reading about it. And then you started understanding the endocannabinoid system. It wasn't even talked about that much back then. And, you know, this is, this is 20 years ago. I was in my early 20s. Um, and... From, from that day on, it's just been, it's just been a passion of mine where I'm just like, look, if, if this can have such a huge reaction, a huge response for somebody who is terminally ill, there yeah. is, there's no out for Huntington's, right. that, you know, that, that, that is it. Once you've got it, there is, there is no cure. There's very little we can do to make their lives easier. But there is this natural plant which she could just smoke and have instant, yeah. instant, instant results. I mean, it was, it, the results were, you saw them in 30 seconds. It's unreal. So had she used cannabis before? She had yes. some knowledge? Okay. Yeah. So her husband sort of said to us, actually, you know, she would use cannabis to help with her symptoms before she got to that state where right. she had to go into care. She had to have extra support because she was no longer able to, 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 to look after herself in any way. You, you know, she couldn't eat, feed herself. She couldn't wash, bath, clothe herself. The number of stories that I've heard similar to this, but across an innumerable spectrum of different ailments, debilitating, chronic pain, anxiety, depression, or like acute health problems, cancer even, of people's firsthand accounts or personal stories where all hope was lost and then this was a last ditch effort and their whole outlook with it was changed. Either as a short-term symptom relief thing, like in a palliative care sense, or, you know, I've heard, and I've, as, as have you, I'm sure, many first-hand accounts of, like, I had a terminal disease, or my child had a terminal disease, and uh, all treatment, all kind of mainstream medicine treatment had been given up, and this is a last-ditch effort. And not only did it help with symptoms, but actually starts reversing the disease or causation correlation, who knows, but there's something going on here. And the thing that I always come back to is, you know, the endocannabinoid system, as you just pointed out, it's been 50 years or something like that since it's been discovered, or at least the cannabinoids have been discovered in the 60s. Um, but no real, no large scale research has been done because all these governments have banned it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think, um, <clears throat> I think cannabis actually is one of the most, if not the most studied plant on earth. However, 99.99% of the studies commissioned to look into cannabis have all been, their target has been to find something negative. 
This is mm-hmm. can, cannabis really has been a plant that has been demonized, victimized yeah. for a very, very, very long time now. It, you know, completely attacked over the last sort of seventy odd years. It's crazy. You know, I mean, a few years before I was born in the UK, doctors could still prescribe cannabis, and you know, it's the early seventies that they changed. They changed that. You know, royalty have used cannabis in the past. They, they might still be using cannabis now. I mean, who knows? It is clearly a fascinating plant. And like I always say to everybody who I, who I meet who's a little bit skeptical of it, we are hardwired to interact with this substance, with cannabinoids. So we're either sort of saying to ourselves that nature has fundamentally wired us to use something that is wrong. So nature is wrong. (laughs) The creator is wrong. Or we're being stopped using it because actually I think as as a general wellness medication, as a wellness product, as you know, I think that's where it's real magic lies. I think we've got to be, you know, recent years since, you know, like Rick Simpson, Another Canadian, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Rick Simpson, mm-hmm. Canadian. You know, came out talking about the RSO oil and all of his work. You know, there's there's still been a, a, a even with all the anecdotal evidence that he's been able to present and other people like him have been able to present. I think we've still got to be careful of this sort of this sort of culture in the cannabis community where they're just like well cannabis fixes everything Mm -hmm. and that's that's yeah it's a it's a tricky conversation it's very emotive because it upsets a lot of people where a lot of people think that actually cannabis is this wonder drug it'll cure everything but i've seen many many times over in my in my work now and in my career working in medicine that actually Yes, it can. It can have huge, huge, you know, benefits to people. But it's not a cure-all, you know. And, you know, illnesses and disease in humanity is a very, very complex issue. And I don't think you can go to yourself, right, well, I've got, I've got cancer and if I take cannabis, right. it's going to guarantee to cure me. But saying that, you know, on my journeys, I have met people, you know, lots of actually lots and lots of people now who have had life-threatening diseases where the medical industry and the medical services are just they're at a loss they don't they don't know what to do they don't understand it and as far as they're concerned well you know you just really need to go home and get ready for the inevitable and these people do bounce back and you know that's that's obviously very very exciting um i would like to see cannabis as a almost as a daily supplement for people I think it, I think it's vital and we, yeah. we see this now with you know like in the UK obviously a couple of months ago during the summer you know the, the UK government's now come out after a load of pressure because of the Billy Caldwell and Alfie Dingley cases those two young boys who suffer from you know chronic epilepsy and you know the very public sort of cases of the home office you know taking the medicine off uh, Charlotte Caldwell and you know, then Sadiq Javid, the home 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 secretary, then sort of come out saying, "Look, the, the government is now going to review this, and we're going to look at sort of providing cannabis-derived medications, you know, for these children, because we know that you know, I mean, some of these kids 
you know, with Dravet's syndrome, you know, an extreme case of epilepsy where these poor, these poor children can have multiple seizures, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of seizures in a 25-hour period. The stress and the damage that does to, to children and, you know, at the same time we're pumping them full of these chemical cocktails which are clearly not actually affecting them at all. I mean, in a positive way. I mean, the, the, the long-term damage and side effects of these drugs is horrendous. And yet we sort of see the fact that they can introduce a cannabis-based tincture into their diet, into their life, and seizures can almost just disappear. In, yeah. in some cases, in hours yeah. in, or in days, you know, where you know their lives are completely changed around and... Yeah, and the th- and the thing about that, like we have, there's products out there that people have been using for years in the sort of quasi nutraceutical market that are cannabis based, that are people using people are using to dramatically solve epileptic type situations uh, and many others. And then there's also at the other end of the spectrum, there's these like hardcore pharmaceutical bi- drugs that have been developed cannabinoid based drugs that have developed following the rigorous scientific process that are now FDA approved to treat these to treat various illnesses and it, it just seems to me like the the argument about cannabis being useful as a medicine is settled there, there's no question it is a medicine um, and and there's countless stories like the ones of, of uh, Caldwell and Dingley but then on, so as a society, I think pretty much everyone who has looked at that issue acknowledges this is a medicine. But then at the other, at, on the other hand, we also talk about it being a dangerous drug. And then that can, you, it can lead to overdoses or it can lead. In the UK, there's all this talk about high strength skunk, which is to me something I've never heard of coming from Canada. But this is an interesting thing, and this is something that I wanted to ask you, because, I mean, this seems to be this sort of, this gunk sort of craze and high-strength THC and psychosis very much seems to be the psychosis of the, the British government, because, I mean, I know that, you know, whenever I go to America, I mean, you never hear about skunk. They're never talking exactly. about psychosis. Yeah. And Canada's obviously a huge cannabis loving yeah. country I mean do they ever is that ever in the media is that, uh, is that a concern well the short answer is like absolutely not so and and it's borne out in the data right so we've had legal medicinal cannabis in North America in some form or another for, for over 15 years and the first 10 or 15, 10 12 years of that uh, there wasn't that much uptake for various reasons in terms of the medical use of cannabis but in the last five years, a combination of, uh, of changes in the laws, as well as the rise of the recreational adult use markets in the U.S., there's been an explosion in awareness in the number of medicinal users in North America and obviously the recreational market. And with that in massive increase in consumption, there's been no increase in the statistical rate of many of these psychological issues like schizophrenia or psychosis as far as can be ascertained by the available data. So like Colorado, Washington State, they've had legal recreational cannabis for um, 
four and a half, five years now. And consumption is going up like that. So like sales of cannabis are tripling over the last five yes, years, quadrupling. And you see no increase in, you know, hospital room visits that are correlating psychotic break with cannabis use. So I think from my standpoint, that should be that that should be debunked, that idea that cannabis causes these psychological issues or even that even in my opinion there's like this link between them i think that should be broken and dis disregarded but nonetheless it exists but i, I will say like again in in north america there I, I had never heard the term skunk and uh you know we do understand the di the, the difference in potency depending on what product you're taking the ratios and the percentages and the higher THC and that kind of thing. But like, uh, it, it does not exist as far as I'm concerned in Canada, the, 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 the concept of skunk. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, an odd, it's an odd one because um, I think, I think clearly we've got to have the adult conversation about, you know, some, I think some people can be affected by substances in their lives. I've, so, I mean, I've used cannabis pretty much every single day for 22 years. I've had access to skunk. I've had access to, you know, concentrates, which are three or four times stronger than skunk. And there has been the odd occasion and a very, very, very odd occasion where I have maybe taken too much and I've noticed my thought patterns start to become a little bit dark, a little bit more uncomfortable. You know, you might start getting a little bit more paranoid. I remember when I took a, I took an edible and it was about 120 milligrams of THC. <laughs> and... Um, well, there you go. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> That's... Uh, that's about ten or twelve times a, a typical dose. Right? I mean, typically, well, in, so, in, in Canada, well, in, in uh, California, sorry, yeah, it would be probably like ten or twelve doses in a in a legal product. But nonetheless, I found myself in a very very awkward situation. I felt very uncomfortable. I was I was absolutely paranoid. I mean, I knew. I knew what was going on in my head. I knew that I, you know, I was able to rationalize and go, look, you know, you have consumed this and this is why you are feeling this. But for a period of time, you know, I doubted my life, my business, my marriage, my friendships. Everything was yeah. just sort of swirling yeah, around, yeah. whirling around my head. And absolutely. Do you know what? That's probably subjective and personal to me because I know plenty of other people who will chew down 120 milligrams of THC in an edible and they'll be absolutely fine they'll be having wow. the they'll be having the best time of their lives but i think my point i'm trying to make is that there's obviously there, there needs to be education i think you know humans historically we we will tend to overuse something which brings us pleasure brings us joy we are programmed to do that that's just how we work um, and i think that can be combated those negative anything negative which we read about could be combated by legalization so everybody knows that they're actually buying a really solid clean product you you, you know the provenance of it 
you know where it's come from, who's grown it, it's been lab tested, you know it is certified. And I struggle with this with our government in, in, in the UK where they will, you know, bend over backwards and state that we are doing this to protect people. You know, this is what we, we're doing. We we need to protect you from these sort of substances. Yet the very system they put in, prohibition, um, the other day I was in Parliament and I went to this new launch of the Children's Inquiry by Volkvast. And this really hit home with me. I was, I was absolutely amazed. The arrests and criminalisation of under 18 children for possession or dealing cannabis in the UK has gone up 26% in the last couple of years. We, we, we are now, we are now criminalising more children under 18 as drug dealers, drug pushers, drug users than we are adults over 18. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the very system that has yeah. been set up to protect the vulnerable, the under 18s, the children, the vulnerable people in society, as the government would say, yeah. is actually the one thing now which is crippling these youngsters because, because people do use drugs. You're never going to stop teenagers from exploring consciousness and using substances. We've all been there. We've all done it. We've got to have that realistic conversation. Everybody does it. Everyone will try it. But because of the criminalization aspect of it, we are now penalizing youngsters who are, you know, we're penalizing them as dealers when actually all they're doing is 15 of them will all throw in like a tenner buy a bag of weed and share it out because yeah. it's cheaper and yeah. they, you know but if that youngster that that 16 17 year old gets caught with that he'll get done for dealing social right. dealing right and i just think it's nuts that you know that that figure's gone up 26 percent. that is an insane number i can tell you the whole movement in canada to legalize was framed successfully and the public after being educated bought in with this uh framing was to protect kids because everybody knows in a black market, kids have quite easy access, like in high schools and playgrounds and stuff like that. There's always somebody's friend is a dealer or this and that. Like, and you, and the fact that it's forbidden makes it more appealing. Like, and I think from a from a logical standpoint, I think we can all see why making this the forbidden fruit puts kids even more at risk than they would than there would be if you had a kind of legal regulated market and you explain to your 12 year old i mean 11 12 year old kids who are out there or 13 14 15 they have the ability to to use logic and to use their judgment if you explain to them the risks and and why at this age it's really not it's really not bad. It's not a good idea to be using it. But the fact when you when you just shut the door and and say like oh, oh not nothing to see here, kid moving along moving along don't look at this, you're just creating that forbidden fruit kind oh. of atmosphere. So up twenty six percent. Do you? I mean, uh, when I hear these kinds of things, like it makes me wonder like, <laughs> is there like an evil? vested interest here that's not focused on the well-being of the population and is focused on you know maintaining special interest groups and corporate interests that kind of thing i mean 
like if you put your conspiracy theory hat on, do you, do you actually buy into the, these kinds of ideas? Because, you know, as an outsider, if you look at it, once you're educated, you're like, okay, we need to change all these laws right away. Stop this madness. But the madness continues and it's not, it's not for one year or two years. It's been 50 years of this, right? So, yeah, I mean, and, 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 and some, I, I think, um, from my personal experience, I, I started using cannabis because my family doctor actually sort of recommended it to me loosely, completely unofficially. She was a family friend of ours. And when I was 15, 16, I suffer from terrible insomnia. Just couldn't sleep. I've always had a very, very busy brain um, mm. and probably a little bit of ADHD little bit on the spectrum and that that has always been tricky to sort of shut down and then what the problem is what I was doing is that I was then overusing abusing sleep medication wow. to, help, to help knock me out or alcohol or other other wow. other substances like codeine and things and Legally or illegal? Alcohol, I guess, technically illegal. Alcohol, alcohol is illegally, but you know, tablets. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, you, you just you just find them in your parents' really? meds cupboard, and you just you know, you're just like, well, I'm not sleeping. I'm not going to tell them about it. So I'll just yeah, I'll just use, I'll just use, I'll just use them. And so for me, cannabis for me has always been this wonderful thing to relax the brain. Mm-hmm. To uh, I, you know, just to round off those edges, you know, instead of, instead of your brain just firing away, being really sharp and, you know, there's just so much traffic and noise going through it. It was just able just to round, round it all off and, you know, allow life as an experience to be a lot easier. I have, I don't, I've never, I wouldn't say I've ever abused cannabis. Uh, It's not a substance that I find I can take too much without right. having a negative reaction. Like when I took the edible, it gave me a negative reaction. It gave me a slap around the face going, that was a bit silly. Yeah. So I'm very, I'm very interested in microdosing, you know, so using much smaller amounts of it, but using them potentially more regularly. So, um, you know, now I've got, I've, got, I've got down to a point where I'm actually only using a gram of cannabis a month in an oil form. So I've, I've really right. been able to tie it down okay. um, because I wanted to sort of work. I wanted to get my body into a state where it would give me maximum results with the least amount of cannabis going into the system. Because right. for me, as much as I do enjoy at times getting what I'd call traditionally high, where I'm super relaxed, a little bit giggly, you know, my mind is just can just wander. I don't find that state particularly helpful for me a lot of the time mm-hmm. where actually I like to be I like to be in control of my mind I like to be in control of my body I don't want to be you know super high yeah yeah that's not something I mean you know absolutely I do enjoy it when the time is right um, but it's, it's, it's rare that I ever get myself to that point so a gram a month, but spread out on a daily basis. So that really is kind of a microdose. I yeah. Mean, yeah, yeah. People so, who are regular users often use a gram a day, right? Like, oh, I yeah. mean, a, 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 I know people who who roll up a gram just in their joints, mm-hmm. and they'll smoke mm-hmm. five, ten of those a day. There you go. And 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 that's 
and that's for them. Yeah. You know, this is this is the thing is that yeah. you know, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to potentially turn it into a medication, so to speak, a traditional medication medication because it is so personal and subjective yeah. to us. You know, it affects me. You know, how I use cannabis is perfect for me and it makes me feel great and I can tick through life happy as Larry. Other people go, dude, that's not going to touch the sides. You know, that's going to yeah. do absolutely nothing. Yeah. It's going to do nothing yeah. for me. I'm like, that's fine. You know, yeah. we're all completely different. And But I think this is one of the hurdles of creating right. medical cannabis because I've met thousands and thousands of medical cannabis users now over the last sort of few years. And all of them have their own routine. All of them have yeah. their own methods of consumption, the way they do it, the timings, all this sort of jazz. It's not... You, I don't think you can turn this into a tablet like a codeine tablet. You know, I could buy codeine anywhere in the world and it's always going to be the same. Right. It's an opiate-based drug. It will do this. But with cannabis, I think it's very, very tricky. And I think this is the, one of the big concerns with now the fact that the Home Office have come out saying, well, you know, we're going to allow doctors to prescribe cannabis-derived medications. And the medical community are up in arms that you know they're confused they're upset they're like well what the hell does that mean a, a, a cannabis derived medication yeah what the hell does that mean yeah. you know i smoke this particular strain and it works wonders for my life but the british government aren't going to allow a medication which is smokable because yeah. there's no medication yeah yeah in the uk that you smoke i think there is a massive sort of cognitive dissonance that's happening in, in society as it pertains to cannabis. A friend of mine was telling me the story about her brother, what, 27 year old brother about a year ago who had a form of depression fairly severe and was on a regime of antidepressants. His doctor was away or retired or changed kind of was no longer in the picture. And the new doctor who took over his file um, had an opinion that he should use different antidepressants and switched him off in one fell swoop from his existing regime to another. Suicidal thoughts killed himself within 24 hours of changing the regime. So when we talk about the existing uh, available approved medically approved pharmaceutical drugs used to treat things like anxiety or depression and we talk about them as as though they're precise and reliable and consistent that's a massive misperception there is a ton of trial and error when it comes to the medical system like you're having a problem some kind of a health problem we'll throw you on this drug see what happens and if that doesn't work we'll switch you on to the next one and uh, if we do something too abruptly, you're going to have a major change in your health uh, that we're not really on top of. And in extreme cases, the, this type of thing can happen. With cannabis, our governments are extremely high strung and extremely concerned about what will happen if you open the floodgates to society with cannabis. Like we're going to have mass addiction or mass gateway, gateway drug kind of acceleration or escalation never been an overdose 
really not that much of a I mean you could argue that people are dependent there are people who are dependent on cannabis but it's not chemically addictive the way countless other pharmaceutical drugs are like the whole opioid family um, so for me there this cognitive dissonance is is like we we need to you know rapidly improve people's awareness of this like yeah on one hand, we're, we're like stuffing people full of antidepressants and, you know, sleep aids you mentioned, which are not healthy and, and have a ton of negative effects on people's various organs and all that brain function, all that. Let's kind of change our perception about these products, meaning let's change our perception in a negative way, reduce our trust in those products and then improve, increase our trust in a natural product that's been around for millions of years, five million years of co-evolution with the human body. Um, but anyway, that I mean, that's like a, uh, to me, the whole microdosing thing, we've talked about that before. It's, it's fascinating. And again, there's not enough mainstream science around it to, to um, you know, to, to give it credibility, unfortunately, but the anecdotal evidence, people like yourself and countless others who find a massive improvement in their day-to-day -day life by being able to use like a fraction of a dose and it just smooths everything out. Yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, you know, this is, this is something I've always been really honest with people is that, you know, life, life for a lot of people can be quite challenging, it can be quite tricky. Um, and, you know, we all have, we all have vices, we all we have all have certain behaviors to try and pacify us at times of stress and i think you know you to you know yeah in, in the uk you know very much the same in north america is that you know the alcohol industry is is just perpetuated you know it, you know it's it's sold to us as this this is this party drug so if you're happy you're sad whatever yeah, yeah. good bad right or wrong whatever state you find yourself in you can always yeah. go down the pub drink alcohol drink wine and you know we, we know the, the absolute destruction of alcohol i mean i, I saw it with sort of my grandparents you know both 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 well, two, three of my grandparents were all, all alcoholics you know my grandfather's an alcoholic and addicted to opiates after a nasty accident and you know it it it, it totally destroyed him it, it ravished him he was you know became very violent and that affected his relation you know he was very aggressive towards my grandmother and, you know because of his drink and drugs um you know to cope she turned to drink right. you know and it's this this massively destructive sort of system in play yeah whereas you know bob marley always said that you know you know alcohol alcohol is the destruction herb is the is the healer yeah and you know i think i think you know society we need to start going back to really looking at plant medicines and yeah. you know, i find plant medicines fascinating and, and you know i've used i've used many of the plant more traditional plant medicines in my life and they've made vast they've had vast vast benefits to, you know to me you know and and everyone around me it is interesting like and i'm as i i'm sort of finding myself becoming a, a a crusader of sorts for for cannabis and plant plant based that is a plant based medicine clearly 
uh, cocaine and heroin are plant-based medicines as well. And so no, no, obviously no. with, uh, with some tweaks, um, but you can't, uh, in my mind, there's like a pretty clear distinction between Coke and heroin as not being all that, I mean, uh, this is obvious. These are super dangerous, highly addictive and lethal, uh, but, I, but are both plant-based. They're plant-based, absolutely. They've come from, they've, come, they've been der- derived from a plant, but they've been massively, massively processed. Yeah. Whereas, argue cannabis, you know, no one's on the street selling bags of coca leaves which you're just going to chew. Right, right. So, you know, it, it, we, and, yeah. we, we know that anything mass-processed is potentially bad for us. We talk about it with food. Yeah. Avoid processed foods. Yeah. Fast foods, anything processed because it's had a lot of the original you know goodness removed from it whereas cannabis is something which can be just grown in the ground and you yeah. can harvest it you dry it and as simply as just rolling it into a joint or mixing it into a fat and a butter and turning it into something which you can eat like brownies biscuits cakes uh you know even mix it into drinks and stuff like that yeah i think it's a very I think it's a different thing. You know, obviously opiate-based medication has been vital in, in society and it will always remain to be very helpful. But the danger with it is that the over-prescription of, med- of, yeah. of opiate-based drugs is, is vast because yeah. it is that perfect repeat business model. You know, I, I, know, I know people, I know people, I know a lot of people in fact who would look down at someone for smoking weed, right? Like literally, they judge them. Oh well, you know, you, you deadbeat, you druggy. <laughs> but the very same people can't get out of bed in the morning without having a coffee and a couple of diazepams. Yeah. yeah. And 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 that is their routine, and they will, you know, and they, there's been their routine for years. And these are people who are who are educated, they're successful. Yeah. But they are completely, they are drug addicts. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're completely addicted to. Well, it's a it's a really fascinating issue, and there tends to be a lot of um, moral superiority around it. Obviously, um, I never drank coffee until I was thirty three. Then I discovered it, and really? it changed my life. And I'm so much more productive. And I'm now, frankly, crossing over that threshold into dependency, where like, okay, if I don't have a coffee, then I'm not all that good during the day. So like, my wife's exactly the same. So well, the thing. About, the thing about that, like, what do we aspire to as a society? Do we aspire to a society where everyone is highly fulfilled, satisfied, content, ambitious, motivated, and just doing great without the use of any mood-altering substance? Um, because in, a, in my mind, that could be... Um, that, that could be what our what our best case scenario is like where you wake up you wake up every day and you feel great because of you just have a fulfilling life and you're going for it and you're working towards a goal all that stuff all of these things fall on a spectrum to help your hard life get better and in my mind you know that term like you can't legislate morality and we've been attempting to do that for decades and it's like one bat, one vice is allowed and another one's not to me that's where we're we're completely screwed up right now and frankly you know why, why is it that i can get alcohol and drink myself into a stupor destroy my liver get cancer etc and not get 
legally smoke a joint that's completely natural as we've been talking but but my point being so what are we what are we aiming for as a society the option a where where like you're just happy and fulfilled and you don't need any of this stuff or are we aiming for a society where it's harm reduction and and let, let let's try and moderate or minimize people's dependency because you know, there is something to be said for, okay, what happens if you legalize cannabis? Consumption will go up. That, that's kind of what happened. When, you, when we had prohibition, alcohol consumption went down and, and then removed it. Consumption went back up. So I get, like, my point being, like, is there a utopia where we can eliminate all of this? Do you think? You know what I'm saying? Like I do. I think to be honest, with 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 drug use, it's a, it's a complex. It's a very complex subject to really truly understand. I spent years working in drug rehab and drug therapy, and and I worked with hundreds and hundreds of people who would be classified as 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 drug addicts, and the one thing you notice with people is that people use substances to alter their perception, their realities. And you're going to get the people who are doing that because their realities are painful. You know, they're living in fear. They, they, they're living in pain. You know, they're living in negativity. You know, their lives are tough. Their, their lives are challenging. And then you're going to get people who are going to use substances just because again not necessarily for any negativity but they want to alter their perception the issue is with my, my personal opinion the issues with, with, with trying to prohibit people from using drugs is that ultimately inherently we all do it you'll get up in the morning and drink your coffee to alter your state, you go from a state of waking up going, I'm feeling tired, I'm not focused, to, to needing to take something to change your state. You'll get people, you know, finishing work, going home, grabbing a glass of wine because they're stressed, chugging a bottle of red every single evening yeah. just to unwind so they can deal with the, the kids and, you know, all of that sort of jazz. And there is nothing wrong with that. You know, we, we all do it. We all look for things to to alter how we feel. Because I think in truth, it doesn't matter if you're if you're rich or poor, you know, we're all human beings, we all struggle at times, we all have mental health issues, we all we all experience negativity, sadness, depression. And instead of sort of saying to somebody no, you can't use this. I personally think we should be having a conversation going, okay, you know, you are experiencing this emotional state at the moment. You're in pain. You're angry. You're upset. You're sad. We can alter that state. You can alter it through exercise. You can alter it through, you know, diet. Diet. You, you can alter it through drug use. Yeah. Um, 
And I think as a society, instead of judging people like we do, and we do judge people yeah. who we consider to be the crackheads on the street, you know that. I mean, yeah. I saw this thing the other day where, I think it was on Facebook, where it's like, if you are sitting around judging someone who's smoking crack on the street, and you're going home and smashing a bottle of wine every single night, you know, there is no difference. You're exactly the same. You know, you, you're, yeah. you're probably doing it for the very same reasons. They, they don't have the budget, and they're probably homeless, living on a cold street in England, so they need to smoke the crack to knock themselves out, to pass out, so hopefully maybe they might want to wake up the next day. Maybe they don't. Yeah. And do you know what? How many people who work in the city earning huge salaries with all the luxuries, the trappings of modern-day life, do exactly the same. You so you might have seen as you were walking here. First of all, hundred percent right. As you're, I totally agree. Under the bridge on the way here, there's like a little bit of an encampment happening, and um, I've lived here for two years, and there's you know a little bit of a rotation of people who are sort of setting up camp there, and it's brutal, man. Like in this weather, it's freezing cold under the bridge so there's like dirty water dropping off of the you know the whatever the overpass um and uh i you can see what's going on there like these are heavily addicted people i happen to know that this park right across right across my house is like where they kind of come for refuge to get high once they score whatever drugs they're looking for, it's either amphetamines or heroin. Like very obviously when you look at them, you can tell that's what they're on. But their life revolves around fleeing abuse, frankly, uh, because their homes are unsafe, etc. Everyone's got a different story, but it's like you don't end up in the UK living on the streets. We're a wealthy society. You don't end up there unless you have a, a really terrible situation at home. So they're there. In the cold, in the rain, dirty, without food, shelter, all that stuff. And then they're kind of shuttling back and forth at all crazy hours of the day, avoiding the police, like, uh, you know, avoiding criminals and predatory drug dealers. And I'm like, when I walk by there, I'm of two minds. It annoys me because I'm like, this is honestly, this is like reducing the value of my property. And it's not nice to look at and then on the other hand I'm like you fucking asshole like how dare you can you like take a moment to imagine what it must be like to be out there you have nowhere to go no warm freaking bed to get into no bathroom to use no shower to use like so there's this paradox of <laughs> compassion and then arrogance that's like whenever I walk by there I have that that, that you know dichotomy and, um, and it kind of comes, in large part, it comes down to our drug laws because they're having to go into dark places, literally and figuratively, to get access to the thing that they're self-medicating with. It's, it's unreliable. It's extremely addictive. You know, their life completely gets sidetracked. Once you're doing heroin, you're fucked, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a diatribe, but it's like, the, the, there, there can be two opposing things that can be true. Like on one hand, like I want these guys earning money, getting jobs and paying taxes for the benefit of everyone. 
but also I want society to have some compassion for them and get them their medicine. Like, well, I think realistically, I mean, you know, from my my, my personal point of view, and I've said I say this to a lot of people, and it and it it's it's taken in different ways. I'm of the believer that actually, as society, we're only as strong as our weakest you know are most vulnerable and you know move, moving forward my interest in in human evolution and helping society is that the reason why we see all this discourse we see this misery we see this mass homelessness is because we're not we're not taking care of society you know we we are we're we're very comfortable as society to push people into certain categories you know if, if you know if people are, are, are problem problems to us as, as a society drug users whatever we'll, we'll move them out of the way we'll, we'll, we'll push them to somewhere else and that that's out of sight out of mind sort of mentality will only work for a certain period of time before you've got to as society and this is the thing is start to look at why why are there so many people like this? You know, there is this, there is this mass discourse in, 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 in our modern day society and, and it affects an awful lot of people. A lot of people can hide it. You know, I, I, I've, I've hidden sadness behind, you know, alcohol or drug consumption. I've been able to do that because I'm middle class. I, you know, I have... I have a good job. I have I have money. I have family. I have people who love me, who support me, who who will help pick up the pieces. But I can't imagine where I would be if I didn't actually have that support structure. And actually, you know, I would probably be in exactly the same situation as them. Yeah. And then someone else would be walking past, looking at me, going, "Oh well, you know, yeah. you're, you're you're just a loser. I hope you die." <laughs> yeah. You know, because yeah. yeah. there'd be one less of you. And it. I think it, it, it's it's tough. It's 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 a tough one. Because um, I think everyone will agree when you can if you can explain someone's story uh, de- dealing with you know a challenging background or trauma or you know lack of care, lack of access to education or whatever else. Like if you can explain someone's story in a microsecond to a passerby they'll have that compassion and they'll have, they'll have that appreciation and understanding, but like people are busy and wrapped up in their daily lives and they're worried about their mortgage payments and their schedule and the, you know, the BS and it, and you don't have enough energy or focus or attention to like take a moment to care. And then you just, you have to like quickly observe something and then file it into your categories. This person, a good person or a bad person. Oh, like, Oh, they're a bum. Oh, Jesus, yeah. I mean, you know, I, th- I think I think all of us, all of us have been there. All of us have done yeah. it. I, I, you know, I just feel that as a society, we need to, we need to start being a little bit more conscious about a lot of things instead of. I think inherently, the human race we're quite selfish. You know, right. it, it is. I think it yeah. is very much about my world, my movie. I'm yeah. the star in this world, and you know, I'm. I want to go for my world and my day-to-day yeah. business and you know if someone if something boosts me up and makes me feel great I'll gravitate towards yeah. that and I'll fluff that up as well but if something doesn't work for me I'll just discard it and shift it to the side you know it, I think we are naturally very very selfish yeah um, as, a, as a species 
you know, because it is, it is all about, it is all about me. It's all about, yeah. it's all about what, what, what's affecting me. And, and there is like a sort of a biological imperative to that, like an evolutionary justification, right? Like you have to look out for, for yourself, number one, to protect your own survivability. And then once you've done that, you can protect your family and you can care about that tight little unit, that little network. And then beyond that, you start thinking about, okay, people in other families that are close to me. And then we, as a society, are now way bigger than that little unit, right? Like me, my family, my friends. My community is so much bigger than that. And it's like all these people around me that aren't inside my little tent. And you have to like really use your imagination to care about them. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, especially, you know, for people like us living in London, you know, which is this incredible multicultural probably one of the most multicultural diverse cities in the world potentially you know we we, you know we've got it's a melting pot of 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 the world you know we've got everybody here you know for me personally i mean i I love it i I love being surrounded by you know different people from completely different worlds different backgrounds i think it's i think it's incredibly healthy but with that we also bring in all the different types of you know complex issues that people from all around the world yeah you know sort of struggle with and i just i personally i just i I, i'm of the belief that there just needs to be an awful lot more compassion a little bit and a lot more love yeah towards all of us and instead of instead of judging and this is what frustrates me with the government and you know how they're you know that they're so they're so blind by the fact that you know people want to use you know plant medicines like cannabis and you know, they, 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 they judge, they lock people up, they destroy yeah. their lives for having that, for making that choice. And I've always taken a huge issue with the fact that, as far as I'm concerned, my body, this physical body of mine, this avatar, and it, it is, is the only possession of mine that I really truly own. It, it, it's me, right, right here, right now. Right. It, it is me. And I get very frustrated with the fact that some other fellow human being thinks that he has ignorable right of being able to say, you know what, horse, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. And you're like, I can't believe, you know, in in, 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 yeah. in 2018, yeah. we, we, we still live by these sort of human design rules. That concept to me, I would put that into the personal freedoms, uh, you know, whatever umbrella. And it's a big theme in America. Like the Americans are so proud of like, you know, freedom, Regardless of whether or not that's actually true in America, but that's kind of what they're. But they do really fight for. I mean, that's they do. It was all about you know the the Fifth Amendment and absolutely. Yeah, I I have the goddamn right to to carry a machine gun. Don't tread on me. (laughs) Don't tread on me. Speech, all that stuff. But in the UK, um, certainly freedom, liberty, democracy is a paramount concepts. Uh, but it also feels like it's a little bit more hierarchical. It's a little bit more know your role, stay in line, do this and that, like follow the follow the thing. And and to me, it's like wh- how, I completely agree. Like, how dare you in twenty eighteen tell me what I can do to my body? Like, I, it's no, I'm not hurting my neighbors. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not hurting myself. And yet, the UK government like will come and seize my property, put me in jail if they knew. Sort well, it's, it's this sort of, it, it's this sort of, uh, I think it's this, I think we use the term nanny state in the UK mm. where, you know, we, we've now got the British government who are just like, well, 
No, you you, you can't do that because. Uh, yeah. You know, well, I mean, we don't know why you can't do that. Yeah. We just decided that you're not allowed to do this. You, you can't do that. I mean, but it's, but I think it's, I mean, it's a much deeper conversation because ultimately it goes through everything where nowadays in this age, you know, you can't just set up a business. You've got to get yeah. permits, licenses, yeah. insurance, and all, all of these little hurdles. It's all about, I think it's a lot of it's about control. Absolutely. And, you know, for what reason, realistically, the reason behind that. I don't know, and you know, uh, like we sort of broached on earlier. I mean, you could send your conspiracist mind absolutely crazy. Um, And we were talking about that earlier, weren't we? You know, know, yeah. Like, why are these laws still in place? Uh, I mean, if we are looking out for the goods of the people, shouldn't we be just rapidly overturning our drug laws and that kind of thing? So that that brings up a conspiracy theory. But sure, I mean, it, it it make perfect sense. You know, if we if we really are concerned about humanity and protecting you know our, our our fellow countrymen and fellow human beings then why would we be why would we be pushing the sale of cigarettes right. like i mean i get that people like to smoke cigarettes but we know cigarettes kill millions of people across the globe millions of people every single year and actually my wife's aunt. Um, I, I, the first time I met her was shortly after she'd been diagnosed with lung cancer. And this was a lady who'd worked her entire life. Um, she had literally just retired. She had been a heavy smoker all of her life. But, you know, that is true. And she retired and she went to go and have a medical checkup for some insurance policy kind of thing and uh, she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And within four months, she was dead. Because they put her on this aggressive chemotherapy regime where she couldn't eat, she couldn't drink, and, you know, it, it, it killed her. Yeah. And we know that this happens. This is this a familiar story. You know, yeah. I, I've worked with lots of people with, with lung cancer over the years, in fact. And it, it seems bonkers that the British government make billions of pounds through taxation of cigarettes and I don't know the UK figures but I mean you know hundreds of thousands of people per year will will potentially die because of the cancer caused by the fact that they've been smoking these things yeah and and there for me there's a slight dilemma there because on one hand what we're just talking about was how dare the government tell me what I can do to my body? Ignoring for a moment secondhand smoke that you could be harming people near you, but you're deriving a lot of pleasure. Smokers really enjoy it, yeah. deriving a lot of personal pleasure from it, shortening their lifespan and potentially going to have a, a very sad end. But <laughs> I guess I guess we can't. On one hand, we can't rail on the government and say. Take your hands off my cannabis and uh, have sure, you yeah. and then on the and then say like, well, you're allowing tobacco and and I am I'm against you allowing tobacco, right? I'm, I'm a so maybe bit may, torn on that. Yeah, no, no. I listen. I agree, and it's, it's it's a very very solid point because my wife is a is an occasional smoker, and um, you know she's a long term smoker, and then she sort of quit, and then she'll occasionally you now have a cigarette, you know, if we're out. And she, you know, she'll say to me, you know, 
it's just my biggest love of life. You know, she's like, mm-hmm. if, if I knew I could smoke cigarettes and I wasn't putting myself at risk, she said, I would just use it all the time. She said, because it's just, she said, oh, it's just, it's just this beautiful relationship she yeah. has with a cigarette. Yeah. And she's like, you know, I love it. I don't get it. I've never been into cigarettes oh. at all. Oh, they make me so sick, like nauseous. I'm so glad, frankly, luck of the draw that when I smoke a cigarette, I feel like fucking puking. But for her, I, I, I just feel, I'm, I'm, I feel sorry for your wife because it's like one temptation that she has to fight her whole life. Oh, she does. Yeah. She, I mean, she, she, she's a huge fan and, you know, her whole, her whole family pretty much are, are, really? are, are huge, are huge yeah. fans, you know, of it. Um, but so, but she has to, you know, she, she has to kind of deal with that, like on a daily basis. Uh, she's conscious. She's, yeah. con- she's conscious of the fact that, you know, she's conscious of the fact that she's yeah. lost someone that she loved because, and it was because yeah. of, you know, the cancer was caused, you know, as far as the medical profession are concerned, was caused by cigarette. Do you think we should ban? I, I, I mean, there is an argument here, like, okay, there's a distinction. Uh, and I do get this question, like, but smoking cannabis, is that going to give, give you cancer? And as far as I'm aware, like, there's not any real data connecting smoking cannabis with cancer. However, obviously, there, there's mountains of it with, with cigarettes, but they have all of these chemicals, preservatives, carcinogens that are added into it. That, but, that, but, this is, but this is the crazy thing is ultimately, natural tobacco, right. the leaf is the same as just yeah. rolling rolling up some cannabis yeah. and into a joint. But this is the crazy situation is that we live in a society where they add, I mean, over the years, I've heard plenty of different figures. I mean, but potentially hundreds of other right. chemicals and accelerants to help it burn, you know, perfectly. Or uniformly and all Uniformly, yeah. so it's this perfect yeah, yeah. smoke. Yeah. And I think that's obviously potentially the stuff which is causing us issues. Yeah. Tobacco, nicotine by itself, they're both interesting compounds. You know, yeah. I, I've, I was involved with a, um, a clinical psychiatrist and, you know, when I was working with children and she was looking at the potential of using very, very low doses of nicotine with children with severe autism to help the concentration because actually wow. the nicotine is, is very, it can be very, very useful. Wow. So... Is not to discredit and go, well, yeah. tobacco nicotine is bad. Tobacco, I would argue, is actually potentially, a, it is a medicinal right. plant. Right. Um, when I was on, last year I went on a retreat uh, where we did a number of different sort of psychedelics. And one of the compounds that we used was this stuff called harpe or rape. And huh. it's... It's, it's stuff called harpe yeah. or, or rape. And it's a, it's a powdered mixture from like the Amazon, Peru. It's an ancient sort of snuff. And it's mainly based on tobacco. It's its main ingredient, but they'll, they'll throw in loads of other different sort of special herbs. And it's blown up your nose at force. And it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not nice. It's not pleasant. It feels like feels like you've been shot through the head with this hot bullet wow but the effect it gives you the clarity is is phenomenal so the ancient the ancient tribes use it before or used to use it or still do use it now 
before they go hunting. So they kind of they kind of liken liken it almost a bit like cocaine, that sort of stimulant where wow. you know you blast a bit up your nose and you just you're seeing clearly. You got energy. Um, so I think, you know, tobacco is clearly a, a medicinal, yeah. has medicinal properties, I would argue. Yeah. Has interesting properties which could aid us. And it's like, these are cultural phenomenon. Uh, I should have done my homework on the history of tobacco, but it, it's like Next brought, brought back to Western world by explorers. I want to say Francis Drake. I'm, I'm completely, maybe completely way off on that. But the point being, I've didn't exist. At, someone will correct that. Yeah, yeah, someone definitely. <laughs> someone, someone went abroad. It didn't. It's not. It wasn't grown domestically and used in society. No way. In in little tiny hamlets and villages, it was brought back and then a cultural phenomenon, just like sugar and spices and all that stuff. Like when you introduce this thing, it spreads like wildfire because people. Gain a massive amount of of pleasure from them. So from it, so kind of to me, kind of slightly goes back to the whole legislating morality. Like if this substance can bring a ton of pleasure, whether it be mental clarity, uh, momentary increase in cognitive ability, or it's like you know whatever the many reasons that people smoke. One one of which is. Uh, one of which is a um, whatever manual fixation or like you know the need to have busy hands or whatever. But you know when you, okay, we can look at the terrible cost on society caused by big tobacco, as is popular to argue about. But you also have to like if you're gonna look at this thing fairly, you have to include the benefit to society. How many people have that pleasure, like, uh, you know, on a day to day basis? And that's the thing where I'm just like, oh man, is it's not quite so easy to just say ban it all. Like, it's kind of, I, think, I think I think I'm going to be realistic. I yeah, I don't like the term ban. We know we mm. know we know through the 20 prohibition here in exactly. the US. Yeah, prohibiting you know banning yeah. something it's, it's just it's never going to work. You know, work. human beings will just yeah. go, you know. Makes it that much more appealing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. I, I'll give you, I'll give you real life example. I remember when I was younger, and I can't remember the exact year that it happened, um, but the British government banned magic mushrooms. I used to go into this little head shop where I used to live down uh, in Worcestershire, and they used to sell, they'd sell magic mushrooms. And do you know what? I never bought them because you could walk into a shop and buy them. So I was just like, well, they're going to be crap, aren't they? I'm not going to buy them. As soon as they made it illegal, wow. two weeks later, we were like, where, where the hell can we get some of these magic mushrooms from? And I was like Holy 16. And, wow. they, and it was only because the British government banned it that yeah. we were like... Made it suddenly. Oh, okay. Well, these are clearly, these are clearly wow. pretty good. And, that's amazing. And that was it. Then we, we acquired them. So that's interesting. So uh, may, I, get, I would assume it wasn't like they first were approved of by the government and then they changed mind. It was more like they had no idea. They, like, they didn't realize what was happening. Yeah, and then they, once they found out, then they banned They were just, they, they, they'd left them alone. Yeah. They were completely unregulated from what I believe. Um, and then obviously at some point, something 
Something happened. Something that it, I maybe someone in the House of Lords sort of became ate, aware. Ate, ate mushrooms and so that then realized, oh wait, this is too much fun. Spoke, spoke <laughs> we can't God. let the people. We're like, no, we're not going to let the people do this. So on that note, prohibition. Yeah, exactly. On that note, CBD. So it's a legal substance. It's you know blowing up as far as people's awareness in the mainstream. Um, and, and there are regulations around it, but it's generally fairly freely available in the UK and all that stuff. Uh, what, what, like, do you think there could be some risk for people in the CBD industry as it becomes more popular? The government takes, takes note as they are the MHRA and the home office are starting to scrutinize it a little bit. They have over the last two years. I mean, I are think- they going to crack down and then cut people's access? I think obviously, you know, like, I'd like to think that they are more aware uh, that you know they can't they can't crack down on it. Yeah. But I mean, I guess, I guess you'll we'll just have to see. I, I I like to think that they couldn't because it's actually sort of grown up into sort of a fairly large industry. There's hundreds of companies involved in the UK, you know, who are, um, you know, selling CBD products. I think there's got to be. There's got to be some sort of regulation. So I think there's 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 certainly uh, like with every industry which is unregulated to a degree, there are people who are selling substandard products. Yeah. Uh, I I would I would urge the British government not to sort of shut out the people who've been pushing these these products and these brands yeah. and building up communities around this because I think that causes a huge amount of damage. And actually, I think. You know, this ties in loosely to what we were going to discuss with the whole Coca-Cola entering this sort of CBD market. I would like to think, and I think, you know, if consumers really want to start to gain some sort of control to the type of products that they are likely to see, they need to sort of be sort of pushing and supporting the sort of the smaller homegrown brands, the artisan brands, you know, who, who do this type of work, because ultimately, Companies like Coca-Cola are only looking to enter this space because they see market value. They see how they can boost profits. And But where I seek solace is that I believe that a lot more people nowadays are much more conscious of where products come from. Are these companies paying tax? Are they looking after their staff? Are they just genuinely adding good value to this pretty tricky world that we live in? And I think if they're not, then morally you're going to have to make that decision if you're going to support them or not of course people are going to continue to support people like coca-cola starbucks and all these other companies um but i think we're going to see a big shift in consumers taking a lot more control on the types of products they buy i think a lot more people are becoming far more conscious on you know the fact that these companies do basically take the piss you know, yeah. we're constantly reading about it in the newspapers that these huge multi-billion dollar companies, you know, they're not playing ball, they're not treating their staff right, they're not paying tax. They're actually, they seem to be taking a lot more from our community, our society than actually giving back. And realistically, without us, the everyday common person, you and I, the consumers, the people who spend the money, these companies don't exist. So actually, we are far more powerful than we realize. And, yeah. the, the, you know, the companies and the, the governments don't want us to necessarily realize that we are in control. 
You know, if, if everyone tomorrow stopped buying Coke for two weeks, Coca-Cola is going to sit up and go, <laughs> okay, yeah. shit, something, something massive has happened. Yeah. And, you know, that's the same with everything. You know, people kick off with, you know, Starbucks, the fact that, you know, they make billions of pounds in the UK, don't pay any UK tax. But you know what, if you're really that upset about it, go and support a local coffee shop. You know, the coffee's half a bloody price. You know, no, they're not going to be seven down one high street. You know, so that's the only choice you've got. But Starbucks would sit up and they would listen. They would they would change their operating practices very, very quickly. Um, but, you know, a, a, a lot of people are very happy just going about yeah. everyday stuff. and It's really, I mean, from my standpoint, not as someone who's like in the traditional... Like, like I, I, my background is in the corporate world and it's like money, money, money and not that much personal interest in small products, companies, brands, community, business, that kind of thing. Traditionally, I would have said, like, the more money, the better. Like, I don't care. You know, the cheaper my can of Coke is, the more money I have at the end of the day. So, you know, I, I don't traditionally have, like, that much involvement in in this side of the argument but I can see it's so crystal clear to me now like in the year and a half that I've been doing cannabis I'm in both worlds I'm dealing with the big multinational cannabis companies who are in a race to gain control of the global cannabis supply chain and then I'm also meeting and talking with the small UK producers who are in sort of a gray market slightly in the black market. And, but their focus when I talk to these guys is like, I'm helping people who have severe illnesses. The government is not giving them access to medicine and my business, you know, privately, uh, in the shadows is to, is to create medicine to help people with illnesses. And it's like, thank God for those people. And I've been, re I've been, it's, it's so, yeah, absolutely. And I've been realizing like, um, they're, they're more, they're more fun to be around, frankly. Like these people have a story, they're authentic, they're doing something for the world other than, you know, following the bottom line. And, uh, like I have a choice going forward. Who am I going to do business with? You know, as they say, whatever in quotes, um, and I'm like, do I want to stay with these corporate guys? Like, this is the thing that I kind of grew up with for the last 15 years. Or join this community, the grassroots community that, uh, you know, is focused more on individuals' well-being and the people that they're helping as opposed to how much money they can extract from them. And don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, like, overly, um, I'm not trying to sing my own virtues. I, I do think it matters to make a profit. I really do. Like I, like, if you can't make a profit, then how are you gonna? Well, how are you gonna? Your, how, yeah. How are you gonna continue rent? doing? So I, I do believe in the profit motive, as they say. But like. Um, but every, but I'd argue most 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 people do because yeah. re realistically, there are very very few people out there. You know who have the resources or the capability of working for free you know right. we, we all do it right. you know regardless if we love or hate our jobs if you sort of said to someone okay well i mean you know you can continue doing this but you're not going to get paid people are going to go oh, i need to get paid and uh, you yeah. know but this is the this is an interesting conversation which 
you know, which which is which is again causes issues, I think, in the cannabis community where the the argument I hear a lot is that well, you know, free the weed, cannabis should be free, blah 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 blah. What why why are people paying for it when you should just grow it? And you're like, okay, this is this is a this is an interesting topic to debate. My standpoint is that if cannabis in the UK was legalized tomorrow and say we banned every sort of multinational big corporation from entering the market, there is going to be no cannabis for people who need it because there, there, there's, you either stay with the sort of the cottage industry, the mum and pup kind of business models where you might be looking after a couple hundred people, but to get a standardised product out there, which I would argue I want, I want to be able to go in a, into, I want to be able to buy a certain strain, say like Blue Dream is one of my favourites, um, but I, you know, I'd like to be able to buy that Blue Dream from multiple places and it all being the same. But actually with products like cannabis, that's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the only way we're right. going to create that is through some sort of standardisation. And yeah. the only way that is going to be possible is through some sort of organisation, you know, and business type model. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you know, it's a bit like people who like, you know, Pizza Express McDonald's. Imagine if McDonald's, every single McDonald's you went into, the bur- the cheeseburger, the ninety nine p cheeseburger tasted slightly different every right. time. You're going to be like, I don't want this. You wouldn't go there. I, yeah. You know, you're going to go in and buy yeah. your burger because it's the, it's the same ninety nine p burger. Same. If it's in Canada, if it's in London, if it's in Singapore, it yeah. tastes the same. Yeah. And and I think this is this is an interesting concept, and we'll have to talk about it more. Well, you know, on the podcast because I think it is an interesting one where I think people have got to be realistic with what the general populace will require and the general I would argue the general populace if they find a product that works for them it's no different to the fact that you know you know I like certain beer but if that beer tasted different in yeah. every single pub I went to I would stop drinking it right you know same with like jeans I buy, I buy my same jeans from Top Man, they're 30 quid a pair. They're, they're the same pair I buy every six months when I destroy the other pair of jeans. Yeah. But if they're a different pair, different size, different fit, different everything, then you're going to be like, this isn't working. You won't for go me. back there. Yeah. Because I think we, you know, society, we, we like to be able to predict and experience. We like to be able to predict what we want to get out of something. Yeah, totally. And I, I think in an industry which is very complex like cannabis, I think we're going to need the research. We're going to need the money. Yeah. We're going to need the structure. We're going to we we're going to have to work with and embrace elements of this. I think, and I think we can do that by avoiding these huge companies which don't pay tax, don't treat their staff right, don't do pensions, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. I think as a community, a society, we can we can change that through how we vote by where we throw our money. Um, absolutely very quickly and we have a chance here in the UK to support political parties and representatives that understand that and there's no reason we can't have a homegrown no pun intended domestic cannabis industry and many other domestic industries that are kind of for the people by the people we could we in the UK yeah. in the UK and I know this will upset people from outside of the UK but I say this with absolute sincerity we have some of the best growers 
in the world, right. especially for indoor, because that's that's what we've had to do. Right. You know, I mean, you know, the UK. I've travelled the world. I've been a big cannabis fan for many years. I have tried cannabis in in every single country I've been to, and you know, the the US, Canada, they've obviously you know they've they've got a very very good model and they 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 do an amazing job, absolutely. But considering the UK is the fraction of the size of like New York State. <laughs> We have a tiny population compared to North America. You know, we've got some very, very talented yeah. you know, people who produce very, very good products. And by the way, those types of guys in Canada now are rock stars and in the US because exactly, there's yeah. this like huge mainstream movement to legitimize the whole industry. And these guys, among other things, you know, make make a lot of money in the legitimate world now in North America. So maybe, so and maybe, they're highly regarded. So, so maybe that's it. It's actually, it's that you know, we we are going to get companies like the, the Coca Cola, the Starbucks, you know, the McDonald's of types of industries, companies which are potentially going to look at entering this space. But actually, maybe that's what people in the UK need to do. They need to start looking at really creating their own brands, really doing the best job they can building up that following so even if coca-cola does come in with yeah you know the the eight pound gram of weed yeah you still got your ten thousand people your followers your fans whatever like who'll still buy your weed at twice the price because they recognize the the, the value of it yep. and i think maybe that's that's the way to look at it instead of looking at people like coca-cola you know et al um you know as as, as threats look at them as well they'll just service the people who would always buy the McDonald's, the Coca-Cola, the Starbucks. And yeah. there, there will be millions of people who do that. But maybe just focus on your group of people, if that's 10,000, 100,000, a million people who are actually going to be all over you because you create the very best artisan you know, cannabis in, in, in the UK. So for me, I'm in two minds. I, 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 almost, I almost want to embrace Coca-Cola getting into it because I think it potentially normalise. Wow. Normalise. Bold statement. It. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, do you know what? I think Coca-Cola, they're not going to have a clue. They're, yeah. they're not going to be banging yeah. out good products. Yeah. You know, there'll be other people who'll be able to produce a better, more personalized product to what people want. And we just got to find those people and support them. I definitely notice, like when I, when I'm around you and other people who are not in the cannabis industry, uh, as I've said to you before, like I can see they gravitate towards you because of like for one thing it's like authenticity but it's like your your product knowledge and your personal experience with it you can't fake that so coca-cola is not going to walk in here and then produce something that has the depth of experience that an artisanal producer who's uses the product himself and has been honing it over decades like there's a built-in protection there for the people who have been honing this industry for decades it's not all about the economy of scale or the, you know, who can have the lowest cost and the highest production volume. It's like, do you have that real deep level of understanding and experience? It's not just sativa, indica, or terpenes and flavonoids. It's hundreds of different features interacting. And me, as someone who's been involved for two years, I don't understand that. But again, like, the people who are who are doing it and have been doing it, they have that knowledge and that credibility, and I think that's incredibly valuable. Um, I, I I agree with you. I think I think that's you know that that's the way 
I believe that this world is really going to sort of move towards. I think, you know, I've noticed this, you know, my background of psychology, you can, you can see this change in how people operate, what people are looking for. And especially over the last few years, there's this raised level of consciousness. There's more access to information and to be able to make intelligent, informed choices about where you want to invest your time, your money, your passion. And to be honest, the, the more I look at big corporate coming into the cannabis space, I'm like, you know what, boys, knock yourselves out. You, you go for it. You go for it. Because actually, if the big boys enter it, the governments will buckle. They're going to, well, they're more likely to buckle quicker. Right. You know, I mean, I was talking to somebody not so long ago, I can't remember who it was, but they, you know, they were saying that, you know, the British government are being approached by companies and businesses who are willing to invest, I mean, very, very serious money into making things happen. You know, I, I think the UK is going to be a, a, almost like the, the, the kingpin of Europe for the, you know, the entry into Europe for, for, for cannabis-based products over the coming years. You know, just through our, our, our skills in engineering and the pharmaceutical trade and, and, and all of that jazz. I'm not against creating bloody brilliant pharmaceuticalized cannabis products because actually I think there is a lot of room to be able to improve little things, just how, how our body is able to digest and to, to utilize the cannabinoids. You know, I was talking to someone not so long ago where, you know, they were using just raw FETCO full extract cannabis oil. And they were chewing through loads of it, like a gram a day. And, you know, she was like, I'm not necessarily feeling anything from it. I'm like, well, the problem is because you're eating raw cannabis oil your body probably isn't even absorbing 50 percent of it you know actually it might not be even 30 percent so you're losing 50 to 70 percent of this 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 medicine because it's not formulated correctly It's, it's not in a viable form that your body can go yes I know what you are right. and, I, and I can abs- I can absorb you and I can you know it's, you know you're totally bioavailable I can just there we go happy yeah. it's nice and easy um, so, and I think you know to to create products like that we're going to we're going to have to have money expertise and that is sadly probably going to come from yeah, whoever <laughs> the big corporations, the big corporations, yeah. as much as we, uh, as much as we try to avoid them, but no, I think I think there's a, I think there's, um, I think there's a, I think there's a, a, a lot of opportunity moving forward. So, we've been going now for about ninety minutes. So, I think we should probably uh, wrap this conversation up for this evening. But uh, we'll certainly continue it on a on another podcast as always it's a pleasure thank well, you very much Orson thank you so well I, well I mean I hope people find that, that that brief conversation interesting and enlightening in some shape or form so there we go